Hi, I'm Danny. And I'm Nicole. Welcome to the Spend Culture Stories podcast, where we explore the connection between company spending and culture. Join us as we dive deep into understanding the people, processes, and tools that make up spend as a whole, or what we call spend culture. Welcome to another episode of Spend Culture Stories. Today's guest is a really special one just because I got to meet Steve personally through a mutual friend and colleague of mine. Steve has such a big heart with amazing personality, and we're super excited to welcome him to the podcast. So Steve is the CFO and an assistant dean at UCLA Law, and also a VC and a serial mentor and volunteer. Steve manages a $90 million budget at UCLA Law and a whole 200 and plus member team, yet he still makes time to contribute to the community. Welcome, Steve. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. Just by looking at your credentials... That is one amazing accomplishment, the CFO and assistant dean of UCLA Law. So how did you get here? How did you go from entry-level accountant to CFO? I can tell you my parents are very proud of me, and I'm pretty proud of my accomplishments as well. So I've been at UCLA Law School in the same office, literally in the same office, for 22 years, which is not typical, and I honestly, I never expected to be here that long. This was my second job out of college. I was a UCLA undergrad. And I came in as an entry-level accountant. I was at the very, very bottom of the range, lowest paid person at the law school, and two years ago, got promoted to CFO. So it took me about two decades to get to the position that I'm in now. And what did you have to do to get to this position in terms of, you know, learnings, in terms of like what you had to actually accomplish within your previous roles? If I had to boil it down, there's some basic philosophies that I employ both in my job and my everyday life that I think has has helped me to get to the place that I am. And then there's other things that kind of happen that have been kind of lucky as well. But my first philosophy when it comes to my job, regardless of what job I'm in, regardless of my job description is, and it's pretty simple, maybe everyone knows this, but it's make your boss's job easier. And that's that's the first philosophy. And the reason why I think that's so important is because you become integral to the organization. You learn about what your boss does and it allows the boss, whoever that is, whether it's a supervisor, a manager, you know, a C-suite leader, allows the boss to focus on other things. Like there's always more people can do, especially in, in leadership. There's always more. So to the extent that you can help them relieve some of their basic things. So if I can unstuck a particular initiative or project or assignment, then, I mean, it's better for the whole organization. So that's the first basic philosophy. I kind of stumbled upon it early on in my career, and it turned out to be extremely beneficial to get to the spot that I'm in. And as another kind of aside for this, during the 20 years before I became CFO, I worked for the same CFO the entire time. And that's why this philosophy of making your boss's job easier really meant something both for me to grow within the organization and for my boss who then retired as CFO two years ago and there was no one else that would take a spot. It just didn't make any other sense. Right. So it's almost a natural line of succession here, right? Exactly. Yeah, Mm -hmm. 20 (laughs) years of succession. But yeah, no, that's exactly right. So that's the first one. I have two more. The second one is to always have a student mentality. There's a certain humbleness associated with it. This is also true within martial arts, which I've done as well. There's always something more you can learn. There's always something more you can refine. 
And if you always have that attitude that there's always something more to learn and to understand, then you're always growing, right? You're always seeking out more information. You're always seeking out some sort of education. And anyone who thinks that they know it all doesn't know it all. Anyone who thinks that they're the smartest person in the room is in the wrong room. You want to always be trying to learn. And so that's another way that I got to the position that I am. After starting at in this position as an accounting assistant, within a couple of years, I started taking classes at, through UCLA Extension. I started doing some independent study. But then most importantly, I decided to get my MBA. That proved to be so important to my career arc because that get, that taught me a lot of things that helped me to network as well, which I'll get to probably later on and allowed me to be in, in a position that of, of a CFO, right? To have an MBA or a CPA, something that furthers your education, that gives you probably more importantly than anything else is the credibility. I work with a bunch of lawyers. We train a bunch of future lawyers. And if I didn't have my MBA, I don't think I'd get as much credibility from these people. You know, I, I meet with our board of advisors, our donors, and these people are partners in the biggest law firms in the world making millions of dollars a year. I can run with them knowing that I have my MBA, knowing that I have the education behind it, and knowing that I'm always trying to learn as well. Because there's always something I can learn from them and that I can, and they can learn from me as well. So that's the second secret. I love that. Like the humbleness and just being able to always be open to learning. But I think always having that mentality, even though you're so successful and already, you know, at that level of CFO, when you still realize there's other things to learn, I think that's super important. So thank you for yeah. sharing that. No, absolutely. It's crucial. And this is true, not just in your job, but in everyday life. And again, this is a life philosophy for me as well. In fact, two months ago, I just got my instructor title or I, I was certified as an instructor in yoga. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. So even <laughs> as busy as I am, like I find time to take care of myself physically and invest in learning as well. Right. So there's, there's always something you can learn and master. Absolutely. And what was the third point that you were mentioning? The third point is basic philosophy as well. It's continual improvement. It's kind of the, the sister to always being a student and always learning, but slightly different in the sense that I'm always trying to refine processes. I'm always trying to find ways to make things more efficient or more effective. And by doing that, you're always thinking about, okay, you know, how am I using my time? How can I use it better? How can I delegate this? How can I include others? What do I need to learn? So there's that continual improvement mentality, whether it's a process or yourself or the way you manage, kind of adds to that, that wanting to learn. And I find that over time, over the 20 years being in the same office, like things change. I mean, that's a reality, whether it's technology or needs or processes. And so if you're always trying to improve as well, then you kind of stay with the tide, if not try to get in front of it, because you, you can't just keep doing what you're doing. You have to innovate. You have to create. You have to change. Absolutely. Just keeping up with whatever is going on around you and not just um, staying true to your ways. I think that's something that a lot of people can really learn from. There's a book that I, I force my staff to read, and we probably read it every few years or so because it changes and the needs change, but it's a book called Who Moved My Cheese? 
it's a very simple book. You can read it in less than 30 minutes. But the book is titled Who Moved My Cheese? And it's about always seeking out new cheese. And like, instead of just sitting there waiting for your, as your cheese starts to mold or you run out of cheese, like go out and seek it. So it's, it's actually a really good book. It's kind of hokey, but has a great message to it. And so it, it keeps an eye on change and um, looking to the future. That's amazing. I should definitely check that out. I'll also link the link to the book in the comments here if any of uh, the viewers want to check that out. And um, actually, I'm also curious. So what is the fundamental difference between what a CFO does and what, for example, like a senior level accountant or a director of finance? There is a different mentality between being an accounting assistant, being an accountant, senior accountant, being an analyst and being a CFO. This is the most simple way I, I could describe it, which is an accountant, even uh, an, an analyst. Most of that is very backwards looking. Accounting is very, it tends to be, here's what happened. Here is the financial report for last year. Here is the profit and loss for last year. But what a CFO does and what's important about a CFO is to be forward looking. I mean, obviously, the past results are absolutely important, and it's a product of efforts by the CFO and the whole financial team. But the CFO must keep an eye towards what the future holds, risks, strategic direction, whether it's you're trying to increase revenue, lower cost, you're trying to expand. It's how do you get there? What does that future look like? What are those financial risks? What are the business risks? And it is the CFO's responsibility to flag those. And this is where it gets hard because you know, whether you report to a dean like I do or a CEO or a president or an entrepreneur or a founder, it's the CFO's responsibility to flag threats and issues, even when the boss doesn't want to hear it. Because those lead to tough conversations but they're essential. If the CFO always can't went to the boss, to the CEO, and always reported good news, good news, I think they're not quite doing their job. It's like, hey, here's good news, but here is the risk. Here's the percentage that risk might happen. Here's the potential fallout and the magnitude of that risk. But it is the CFO's responsibility to be that person. Now, granted, you don't want to always be the, you know, the sky is falling guy because then you lose credibility as well. Mm -hmm. You want a, a mixture of both. And that way, what you say has weight and some truth behind it and is reliable to make future decisions. Thank you so much, Steve. That really gives me a better insight into what is the fundamental difference between a CFO and a senior accountant. I think a lot of our readers of the blog and also listeners of the podcast are aspiring to be a CFO, and that really gives them a better idea of what the fundamental differences in mindset are. In terms of trying to get to that CFO level, like we talked about investing in yourself and growing and learning, and I'll be even one level more specific which is to invest in public speaking mm -hmm. as an accountant, as an analyst. How often do you have to get up and give a presentation? Probably not too often, maybe in a department meeting, maybe. But when you get to that CFO level, you have to make presentations. Like I said, I, I, I meet with the board of advisors. The, the board meets quarterly. I meet with the dean and other leaders of the, the school. And so being able to communicate, to be articulate, to speak in public, and actually be effective at it 
is a skill you don't just like, okay, hey, I'm the CFO, let me learn this or let me do this. Like it is something you need to work on and get better at. You know, and before we started this podcast, you and I had talked about Toastmasters and I absolutely recommend doing Toastmasters even for a, a few months. I meet people all the time. It's like, oh, I don't have time. I don't have time. But I've thought about it. I want to do it. I hate public speaking. It's just one of those things you've got to just put yourself through if you want to move forward. And so it has probably been one of the most important things I've done for myself for my career. And to be comfortable, like I still get a little bit nervous before I speak, but because I've done it so much and I've worked on it for more than a decade now, I know I can do it and I know I can be effective at it. And so again, it is one of those things you don't, you don't wait to learn that skill. You, you have to do it now. Right. And I remember when I went to my Toastmasters too, this was like a few years back and I see a lot of um, older people there too, like even in their sixties, even when they're retired, you know, they're still investing in that opportunity to be a better public speaker, to be a better person. So I really respect that. So my next question for you, um, this is an interesting one. How was it like being a C-suite finance leader and a person of color? That's a good question. Mm -hmm. It is a privilege for me. I also see it as a responsibility mm -hmm. because whether I like it or not, whether I realize it or not, there are people who look to me as a role model. And unfortunately, there still aren't a lot of role models out there that are in the C-suite that are diverse in color. And I'm not quite sure why that is. We still have a long ways to go. So I'm an Asian American. I was born in America, and but never really thought of that as a restriction. I've heard people talk about a glass ceiling. Mm -hmm. And whether that exists or not, I think... It's partially up to you to accept that it does, and I never did. So I never used that as a crutch that I deserve something because of it, and I never used it as a limitation that, hey, because I'm this, I can't do that. So it is a thing in terms of actual, when you look at the actual demographics out there, yeah, there aren't a lot of diverse people in high-level leadership positions. It's true here at UCLA. It's true in most of the law firms that I interact with here. So I say that and say that you can do it. You have to work at it, obviously. You have to go to the networking events. You have to you know, find people who will be your mentor and help you grow. You have to invest in yourself like we're talking about. You can't just expect it to happen. You still have to work for it. But once you're there, I do find it it's a responsibility to then show other people that it is possible. So this is why I also take a lot of time to mentor people, especially mentor people of color, mm -hmm. to encourage and to be that role model and that example that they can do it. It is work. I don't think anything that I have, I did not work for and didn't. I worked for everything extremely hard. And I mean, even to this day, I'm always doing something more and extra to differentiate myself and to show that, you know, hey, I belong here. I deserve it. Absolutely. And I think even having that representation around you, like, for example, if you're a student at UCLA and you see, you know, Steve Yu, the CFO, you almost have that um, inspirational figure you can look up to. So that's super important. So you oversee a $90 million budget at 
UCLA. That is crazy. So how do you even manage this budget and how do you usually allocate it? That's a big question. I mean, that's, there's most, multiple facets to an answer like that. So we do incremental budgeting versus a zero-based budgeting. Incremental meaning whatever you got last year, you might get a little bit more, you might get a little bit less. And versus zero-based budgeting, which is you build a budget up from ground up every single year. I need this. I'm doing this this year. And so it tends to be a, easier is probably not quite the right word. It's less effort in the sense that you don't have to redo an entire budget from, from the very ground up. But there is a lot of politics in it. There's a lot of negotiations that happen. And then especially in, in quote unquote, the winter season, then those conversations get hard. We've been lucky here that we at UCLA Law have been extremely conservative in our financial planning. And I credit that with the previous CFO, my previous boss and my mentor. He came in as CFO 24 years ago and then left the CFO, and he was extremely conservative. And so that helped to weather the storm when there's a downturn. And that's the reality. I mean, that's just what life is. There's always a winter season and then there will be a spring season. There will be, you know, the boom times and then the recession. Mm -hmm. And as a CFO, as a C-suite person, as an executive, your job is to look ahead and during those boom times, not get too drunk at the party. <laughs> and during the down times, be ready and kind of have put some stuff away in your back pocket. So I think part of the bigger picture is conservative planning. But again, not so conservative that you say not hire enough people and then you burn your people out and you push people out or you don't pay fair wages. Like you want to be good to your staff. I'm not talking about just my accounting staff, but to your employees. You want to be generous, but not so much so that it's, you know, you want to be with market at least. But even with that, a little side note, I oversee the HR office as well. And something that I believe in is investing in your employees, whether it's trainings, whether it's morale events, doing community service events together. Like there's ways to invest in your employees that are not just financial. And in fact, the literature out there says it after a certain basic amount of income, as long as people can have like a nice living wage, what really is important for them is other things than compensation. It's whether they have a boss that believes in them, whether they believe in the mission of the company, whether they have opportunities to grow and to learn and to try new things out. So this, that's just a kind of a side note for, in terms of compensation. It's not always about money. And yes, money is important. And yes, we all want to make more money. But in terms of finding engagement and fulfillment from your job, it's more than just the compensation. And I think it's too one-sided to just think it's just money. So, so I apologize. That's a little side note with that. Back to, back to the budgeting piece. Each company is going to be different. It, part of it is also based on what your strategy is. And strategy evolves over time. It doesn't, it should not change overnight necessarily. I mean, in technology, maybe a little bit of that, but it is something that should evolve because strategy should be something that is long-term in vision. And so thinking about where are you putting your money? Is it meeting your strategy? Does it give you the infrastructure you need to, to execute that strategy? And then something that, I, again, that I go back to, we talked about investing in yourself and really what is that return on investment? 
You know, if you're going to do Toastmasters, you're investing yourself. What is that return? What are you getting out of it? And I do the same thing with budgeting, which is, okay, if we hire another staff for you, if we buy this $50,000 software for you, what's the return on investment for the company? Like how much more value are we getting back? How much money are we saving or are we? You know, or is it just a nice to have or it's just like the latest, coolest thing? So I want to look at it from the return on investment perspective. So you have to balance spending money and then what you get back. Because if you're overly conservative, you're just trying to like spend less and less and less. And I don't think that's the right perspective to have, at least not for me in my financial philosophy. Yeah, that's an interesting point you brought up because a lot of uh, companies, what they see spending as is usually something that is restrictive. You know, if we drive down the cost, that is basically our strategy, but that's really not a strategy in itself. So I guess the follow up to that question is if you had to describe the spend culture of UCLA Law School, what do you think it would be like? We're an education, an educational institution, because we're, I mean, we're partially state funded, not as much as we once were. And because we don't really have sales in revenue, I think it's a misnomer or it's, it's a misguided perception that's like, okay, you know, students pay their tuition, we get the money from the state, just spend, like who cares? But we've tried to, at least in my office, and, and again, with our my financial philosophy is to run this a little bit more like a business. What is our revenue? What is our spend? What is our surplus deficit? And you know, I say surplus deficit versus profit and loss because, again, it's a little bit different. We're not a for-profit company, but I do want to know, are we spending more than we're bringing in? And what does the forecast say about that? Are we running surpluses? Are we running deficits? So... To, to go back to the actual question about you know, what's the spend culture, I think there's this pseudo quasi-government mentality at higher ed in general. I've seen this everywhere and I've talked to other equivalents, my, my equivalents at other schools where it's just like it's government. And you're just like, you don't care. You just spend. So that lackadaisical attitude towards spending, I, I'm just not a big fan of. And so it's part of it is to indoctrinate and train our faculty, our staff, our students that, you know, money is finite and maybe we're not trying to run a profit, but we are definitely not trying to run deficits either. Right. Absolutely. Having that fiscally responsible attitude is really important, regardless of whether, you know, you're a private institution, whether you're an educational institution. Yep, absolutely. And, you know, and money is not everything, but it is part of everything. And so every decision that made typically has some sort of financial impact, at least for us at the school. And I mean, it's true in most places and even in, in people's personal lives. You know, everything that I'm talking about here really is applicable to how you live your daily life, how you manage your personal finances. And are you spending more than you're making? Are you running a surplus or a deficit? Are you looking to the future? What is your future income? What are big costs that are coming up that you can plan for, that you can account for, that maybe you save for now? If you're going to buy a car, you know, are you saving for it now? If you're going to get married or buy a house? Like, again, these are not things that you just all of a sudden decide to do. Well, I guess some people do. <laughs> but financially speaking, stuff that you should, you should and can plan for. Absolutely. Planning is super important when it comes to anything. <laughs> Speaking of UCLA law, how do you usually manage your spend processes? Uh, what does this look like and what is your go-to tech stack? 
Well, actually, UCLA is looking at had a series of kind of homegrown software programs and stuff that we hire a bunch of programmers to build and then to maintain. And finally, I feel like UCLA is going towards more enterprise solutions that exist. Because it's like, why reinvent the wheel? So we've just released a new payroll software and and now are in the process. We're in a two-year implementation process of a financial software from Oracle. We went through different options. We looked at Workday and some other places as well, but ended up with Oracle to help us manage our finances, to kind of get away from the proprietary softwares that we've built that are built off a mainframe that might like crash at any time. And so jumping ahead now to cloud-based solutions, which are important and they're safer. And again, that's why these software companies are so big and so, so profitable because you build it once and then you get to, you know, you, you customize it and personalize at each institution, but then you get to just use it and deploy it as is. And use best practices. That's kind of where we are with at UCLA that we're we're now finally heading down these enterprise software route. So if you could give some advice to some other organizations that are implementing software, um, what advice could you give? Because I know sometimes when you implement an enterprise solution, it could take months for it to be fully onboarded. So what could you give as advice? First, I will say it's always harder than you think and will always take longer than you think. It's just the reality of things. I think people tend to be optimistic. I think each place has its its own nuances and its own issues and its own kind of specialties. They're, it's tough. But again, it's one of those things that the costs are high up front, especially with the, the crossover, the customization piece, the training. But hopefully the return on investment helps you to streamline your processes, make things more efficient. I mean, what these things are supposed to do is not just make your lives easier. I think that's kind of the common statement, and I, I use it myself as well. But what it's supposed to do is free up your time so that you can do something more value added. And again, as, as I've been having this conversation with my staff here and my financial team, is that we spend so much time pulling data and we spend so much time customizing reports that we don't spend enough time. We spend some time, but I would like to spend more time on analysis, on forecasting, on looking at trends. So this is where I think an accountant, a senior accountant, could look at their job a little bit differently. It's not just about processing transactions and about the reporting piece. It's That's half the story. And and again, that's all backwards looking. Like, what does this mean for the future? What is the trend? Are there issues? And I think that's the value added. So if this software can reduce the amount of processing time, pushing paper around, making it easier to pull reports from some sort of data warehouse or something, then the reporting is easy. Then you get to, you get to free up your time to do analysis. And that's where the money's at, truly. So, so I think that kind of answered your question about implementing new software. I think also the best way to find out how an implementation went and how the software works is to talk to references. You know, once you figure it out, like, you know, what company kind of fits your needs, what software fits your needs, but check out references from a previous installation. And I find that to be true. This is true for employees as well. When you're hiring people, if you do not do reference checks, 
you are rolling the dice on it. Like the reference checks give you so much rich information. And it's important to listen with a keen ear and ask good questions. Absolutely. I think having social proof when you are looking for a solution or looking for a member of your team is super important. Before you even evaluate something, you should be speaking to the source of, you know, where has uh, someone found this information before or someone has done it before, right? Learning from them. That's very important to do. Exactly. Yes. So a follow-up to that question, how did companies actually change their spend processes or how does UCLA change its spend process since you started your role in 1996? So it's been over 20 years. Um, How does that usually evolve? Wow. Not very easily. What I have found over this time, because the school has grown, our funding sources has grown, um, our needs have grown, that what the CFO used to do 20 years ago is now what our junior accountants do. And so the needs just develop. And so that's part of that evolution. And I can, since I've been in the same office, I can even describe how for my office at UCLA, even our role within the school has evolved and changed. When I first started over 20 years ago, the most important parts of our job was AP and AR, right? The payables and the receivables, making sure we pay our our vendors, making sure we deposit our receipts. And that evolved into what started becoming more important was managing the general ledger and we had so few funding sources and we didn't spend as much money. We weren't as big. You know, the general ledger was always just kind of something we just did maybe by fiscal year end. Then that became more prominent, important. And then the evolution con- continued on where all of a sudden now reporting became really important, both to department managers, to the dean, to my office as well. So then more emphasis on reporting. And when we got to that point, I remember this is probably 15 years ago. I was like, wow, that's that's a full life cycle of an accountant. Like I feel good about us and you know, we're paying our bills, depositing our checks, we're we're managing, you know, the bank statements and the ledgers and now we're reporting on it. And then what happened was is that those needs continued to expand. Then all of a sudden budgeting the money became extremely important. Right now we're growing, more people want money, but it's a finite resource, so then budgeting was was the big thing. And then that continued to evolve as well, where then forecasting became important, right? Doing projections, forecasting one year in advance, five years in advance. And because higher ed in general became much more corporate, much more competitive. So doing that forecasting and looking ahead became crucial. And I feel like where we are now is that we're now kind of coming full circle. Again, everything those first few things being very backwards looking, payables and receivables, reporting, very backwards looking. And then budgeting is kind of like, what are we budgeting for the next year? And then forecasting is really looking to the future. So you're getting like this full time span of accounting and of an accountant. And we're coming back full circle now where I think auditing is becoming important. Where at, since we're a $90 million institution, like where is the money going? Is it going to the right places? Is it going, you know, are we spending too much on this? Are we getting everything that we need to get from the different sources? And so auditing has become an important part of what we, as part of our job job function. So I feel like we've now gone full circle because auditing is now going back to in reverse. So that that's the life cycle that's evolved over 20 years. I couldn't have predicted that that would have been the case, 
And who knows if there's there's more things that are out there. But I can tell you that an accountant and what we do is is fundamental. It's it is the infrastructure from which an institution, a business, an enterprise sits on and can grow from. So if you don't think you're doing an important job, let me tell you, you're doing an important job. That's awesome. I think that's important for a lot of accountants to hear. Absolutely. It, it, we are part of everything. Thing. And if the processes don't evolve or can't or are limited, then that limits the growth of the company as well. Absolutely. It goes hand in hand. So Absolutely. you did touch up on this a little bit, but I wanted to um, ask like a deeper question to this. So what are some of the key considerations being a financial leader within an educational institution versus, you know, a corporate company? And how do you usually ensure compliance with auditors? As a financial person, I don't think that it's too different in, at least with my philosophy, too different than being here at an educational institution and being in a corporate environment because you want to run the finances rationally and effectively. You want to be fiscally responsible and you want to know what's going on and where, where your money's going and, and where it's coming in from. And the big difference between corporate and like education and nonprofit is that corporations have sales. So that can waver depending on, on the cycles, business cycles, in terms of what you're selling. But I mean, we also kind of live in sales as well because we have to recruit students and we want to recruit good students. And so we're kind of in the sales business as well. So I don't, I don't find it to be that different. And especially as a financial person, the fiduciary roles are, are the same. And when it comes to auditing and compliance, I feel like that that's really just embedded in what you do every day. It is not a separate thing. But I talked about like how auditing has become kind of more prominent. So it's more prominent in the sense that we need to make it as part of what we do every day. Are we, how's our record retention? How's our documentation? Our business justification for expenses? Like those are all things that we should be doing as we're paying bills, as people are spending money. So it should just be kind of fundamental to everything. And again, because our role in some institutions are, are much bigger into the billions of dollars. And it's not something you think about after the fact. It's got to be built into your processes. It's got to be built into your training. It's got to be built into your, your software systems to error check. And so auditing should be just part of what you do every day. And just a follow-up question to that. So what are some things or best practices that organizations can take so that when it gets to an audit, not everybody's, you know, scrambling around, looking for documents, making sure that these internal controls are in place? I'll respond with a couple of different ideas. One is training. When you have a new person, making sure that you train them and educate them and stress the importance of all this stuff. And then the second one is if you can identify, to the extent that it's possible, a champion within your department who is just neurotic about documentation or following rules, sometimes it can be kind of annoying, but you need that mother hen that's going to be like, hey, hey, did you scan that? Did you file that? Is it in the right folder on your, your shared drive? So I've been lucky that someone's always kind of fit that role. It's kind of a personality, honestly. It's not something that's just like, okay, this is in your job description. You have natural people who tend to bubble to the top who are like that. And I've been lucky that I've always had someone like that because they want to make sure everything is 
where it's supposed to be. So when that audit happens, you're like, okay, cool. Like, I got it. Oh, you need this documentation? Yeah, it's exactly where it's supposed to be. Absolutely. Having someone or even a process to document these important information is super important. I feel like that's almost like a no-brainer, but some organizations, like, they don't think about this until it is too late. So having that preparation in place is super important. Yeah. And if you can have your systems do it for you or have error checks or, you know, spot checks or flag things, then again, why leave it to just memory or to the people build it into your systems? One important thing I've noticed also, Steve, is that you are an investor. So I'm just curious, do you have a criteria for investing in companies and why is being an investor important to you? Yeah, I guess I look at myself as a business person. So I'm helping to run this business, UCLA Law School, as the CFO. But I also kind of run my own little business in the sense that my financial life. I mean, we all work hard. We don't want to just work for free. We don't want to just make enough to survive, right? You want to thrive. You want to be able to do things. You want to be able to go on vacations and stuff. So so I, I am an investor. It, it's something that I really enjoy. I was lucky enough to grow up in a home where my father was an entrepreneur, he was an immigrant from Korea and started his own farm, and we're still farming to this day. So I, I always kind of saw that, and I always saw myself as an entrepreneur, even though I'm, I'm in this educational institution. But when I invest in companies, that's a bit of a misnomer in and of itself. I invest in people, and it is the people that run the company that I trust to run it well. But then it's got to be people that I vibe with that they have similar life philosophies, that they are people that I, I would want to hang out with and you know, grab a beer with. And so the investments that I've been in have been with people that I trust, that I know. A couple of them are just really cool investments. This is where networking is key. And this is where going to college or to business school or to some sort of higher ed. One of my good friends from the business school, I went to UCLA Anderson Business School. We were drinking buddies in college. He, after, after uh, in, in school, after we got our MBA, he went off and started investing in real estate in the Bahamas. And so three years ago, he called me up and said, hey, there's a hotel I found, and I think it's a great investment, and reaching out to friends and family. And so I'd like you to be one of the investors. So I'm an investor in a couple real estate hotel properties in the Bahamas. It's known as the Peace and Plenty. And it's because of the networking, because of the relationships, and it's because I believe in my friends. People ask me, it's like, hey, you just sent him a check? I'm like, yeah, because I know this guy and I trust this guy. I trust this guy 100%. And I'm also in a software tech startup called Buena, which we'll release in 2019. Very excited about that. And again, it is people... Stephanie B is the startup founder and she's a travel influencer. And when I met her, I felt the connection. I felt her vision. I felt that she was extremely smart. She's young. She's 28. You know, it blows me away, this younger generation of what they are able to accomplish, the vision and the drive that they have. It just, it blows me away. And I'm just, I'm excited to be part of this company. Um, I serve as the interim CFO. And so everything that we've just talked about today applied to this as well since because we're building something from the ground up and building those processes having the right software solutions doing the right trainings having the right people and the controls those all apply across the board and so it's, it's exciting i love it it really gets you know kind of the heart pumping 
And not everything always works, but it definitely makes life a lot more fun and interesting. That's amazing. And you're kind of diversifying, you know, what you're working on every day so that you're not just stuck in one environment. You know, you're speaking to different types of people and you're working in different sectors. So that's a really amazing opportunity that you're investing in as well. That's how I feel like I grow, continually learn and get to help other people too. The 20 years of experience here applies to other places. And that's something that I'll say too, in terms of a career arc to start closing out this conversation is that when I first started, it was all about me and learning and just trying to do the best job that I can. And then as you get to kind of, as you master things, you get to a certain point in your career, it's all about giving back to younger people or newer people, training, mentoring, coaching, you know, holding people accountable. And that's part of that process that you go from the bottom to the top and then start giving back. There's kind of a life cycle to it, if that makes sense. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Steve. Thanks for tuning in to this week's Spend Culture Stories podcast, sponsored by Procurify. If you'd like to learn more about your spend culture, take our quiz at spendculture.com.